Hey, welcome to the Runways Podcast. My name is Cody. Today I am joined with Dan, Lucas, uh, and James. No one got to see James last week, so this is his first week on. Uh, since it is your Ooh. first week on, James, if you could just introduce yourself to the people who might not know you. I'm pretty sure most people who have gone to almost any tournament can pick you out of the crowd <laughs> and have run into you, but uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm James Silver. Uh, also go by Ceruleus. I It's uh, my middle name. I'm really high up on the XP leaderboard. That is my only claim to fame. I'm like number seven in the world right now. I'm also, you know, part of the Runaways, and I've gone to pretty much every major, every Pro Tour, Worlds, Nats, whatever, in the U.S. Um, I get a lot of bubble out of money and stuff, but, you know, whatever. Still do well. Got top 64 at Worlds. Better than Lucas. And True. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're going to start off. We have a lot to cover today uh, on the podcast specifically. So we're going to start off with the big news that dropped that everyone's been talking about on Twitter and dooming about is the new prism weapon, uh, which finally dropped. And it is the Luminaris Angels Glow. I like to call it lag. I know the name is up in up in the air from what people are trying to call it right I now. I have a name for uh, but. <laughs> but this weapon, uh, it says if there is a yellow pit, a yellow card in your pitch zone, the first attack action card with Herald in its name that you play this turn and your first Herald or your first angel attack, get go again. So this is kind of like a throwback to the original Luminaris. It kind of mm -hmm. fixes some of the issues with the new Luminaris or the, the one before this one. Uh, what do we think of this card? I'm going to go over to Lucas first. Since you've been playing Prism, <laughs> what do you think? Um, is it over? So, is it doomed? Is it back? Uh, so my first thoughts, I haven't played with the card a whole lot, but uh, the first things that I'm thinking are that this card is not that strong. Um, I My current thoughts are that it is slightly weaker than Bluminaris, uh, which is what I'm calling Celestial Fury. Um, I think this new Puminaris... Uh, is not as good as it looks. Um, that is not going to stick. Luminaris <laughs> is not a term that is going to stick. Um, so there are a couple things that this does. Um, first of all, the plus sides. Um, it is just basically one extra resource on your um, <clears throat> turns where you're just playing your hand. Um, you know, Let's say you have a hand with uh, a yellow card and two Wartune Heralds. Um, before, if that resource card was a blue card, you could only play one Wartune, but now that it's a yellow, you can play two. That's incredibly powerful. Um, Prism being a deck that relies on her resources so intensely, being able to basically gain one resource every turn is really strong. Um, it also lets you have your resource cards be stronger cards. So in the past, if you drew a bunch of resource cards, you'd have a bunch of blues. Now, if you draw a bunch of resource cards, you'll have a bunch of yellows, which are much better to play because they do one more damage, or in some case are powerful majestics uh, or auras. Um, there are a couple of big weaknesses with the card, in my opinion. Uh, the first is that uh, you still need to play some number of blues, um, almost certainly. Uh, the deck just has to, um, even if you're just playing Luminaris. Um, and that adds another you know, layer of things that you have to add to your resource curve. Right now you need your red heralds, your blues, and also your yellows. And if you want all your hands to be red, red, yellow, blue, that's a little awkward. <laughs> um, there's not really a way to deck build to do that consistently. Um, also, the card 
uh, is a lot more susceptible to Phantasm Poppers on your double herald turns than Bluminaris. Uh, one thing about Bluminaris is even though you are paying two resources to gain go again, your turns and your resource curve are built around being able to do that. So let's say you have a hand of uh, two cost red herald, another two cost red herald, and two blues. If you, your first red herald gets popped by Phantasm, you can use your Phantasmal footsteps with the one floating, pitch your other blue, and still attack with the herald. If you have the new Luminaris and your two resource cards are yellows and two two cost heralds, if your first herald gets popped by Phantasm, you just pass. Um, so the, there are a little more awkward situations that come up because your resource curve is tighter. Um, then again, I haven't played with it at all, so I have no idea. Um, being able to give your first angel attack go again, as well as your first herald attack go again, is sweet. The fact that you can potentially go three or even four wide if they pop one of your things and you can phantasmal footsteps on a turn is insane. I can imagine just like pitching a yellow, swinging a herald, swinging an angel and then swinging another herald that's incredibly powerful on a turn um and then specifically with uh soraya the archangel of erudition um being able to pitch yellow swing with that and already having go again is incredibly powerful but i don't think i'll be playing it um if i were to register a list tomorrow for a big tournament also there's obviously the issues of if you have a bunch of yellows playing iris of reality in your sideboard gets a lot worse because you won't have as many blues in your deck to swing for four but Lucas, isn't finally being able to push more damage than your opponent can block out of their hand actually good? Because currently with Bluminaris, you can you're like capped at eleven damage. You can only do eleven damage a turn. You can finally do more damage than your opponent can. Well, block. you can attack with two heralds with 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 Bluminaris. True. I will say I was a little scared sometimes of my opponent just blocking me out um, on their off turns. Uh, but the more I played New Prism with uh, Bluminaris, I was actually quite impressed with being able to get through um, like combo Bolton decks or things like that. It is actually pretty hard to block two seven power attacks uh, or even a seven power into a five power or if you're playing yellows, you know, seven into a six, whatever it is. Uh, being able to swing two heralds is really powerful. I know. I, I know in our testing originally, I was a big fan of just block until you find a popper. Uh, which, yep. and then then straight up just kill the angels mm -hmm. um, instead of going to face, which mm -hmm. I think if more decks were willing to play that style, would it would be very good in the aggro matchups. Mm -hmm. I think this fixes that, where they can no yep. longer do that as easily. Yep. So you're not susceptible to that play pattern anymore. Yeah, you're also less susceptible to that because you are, if you're playing this list, you can potentially play more figments than you would be able to otherwise. Playing like six figments in the uh, in the Bluminaris deck is really hard, but if they're your resource cards, it's actually okay. And uh, one issue that you'd run into the past is people blocking you out and then just killing all your figments. And then instead of these insanely broken cards that justify you being at 32 life, you have these two for sevens <laughs> that you could pay two to give go again to, uh, which is pretty medium. So, yeah, the card's interesting, um, but it's Puminaris, so. Yeah. Next, anyone disagree? I'm kind of in the middle of Lucas's opinion and Fino's hype for the card. Um, I think it adds a lot of quality of life changes. Like, if you ever get that angel out first, being able to attack with it first and actually get the trigger and start your turn that way is very powerful. Um, making your nine war tunes, like, your starter for the turn is incredible. Um, 
and I still haven't figured out if the uh, <clears throat> the fake war tunes metamorph in uh, symbiosis are good enough to play. Symbiosis being a yellow, so you can still pitch it, and metamorph being like an incredible chain ender. Because um, if you throw it first and they don't pop it, you're like, well, these don't have herald in their name, so kind of shit out of luck. So you can never start with them. And being able to pitch your angels to actually give your shit go again is incredible. And I thought that was one of the biggest weaknesses of the deck in both CC and Blitz. Just like, what the fuck do I do with these angels if I draw them early? Um, but then at the end of the day, I think... I don't, I don't think this makes the deck worse, like Lucas was trying to say earlier. It just, we have different options now. And I do think that uh, sideboarding into Iris will be much harder uh, without all the blues that you needed for the, the blue Minaris. Um, kind of vote that blue Minaris is poo Minaris, but this one be three Minaris. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't like any of the names. Maybe it will just be lag. I like lag. Um, Simple. Yeah, I like Black. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. That, that might be the name it. to stick. It's nice and easy. Um, a lot of my points, though, Lucas just said, so <laughs> I'm not going to repeat him. So I, I will point. pass the torch. Yeah, Good. go. Let's go. Yeah. Am I not all dooming over here? They're dooming yeah. in the opposite direction. Everyone on Twitter is sitting here like it's back. <laughs> oh no, I got to play against Prism again. It's all over. Every- <laughs> the first Lucas and James it was already back. Oh, it's, it's trash. It's it's, it's terrible. Yeah, maybe if you could also play Iris, the card would be finally if you could play two I, weapons. I think I think, card, I think you're really big. I think you're underestimating the ability for that deck to run yellows and blues. I mean, the original mm-hmm. Prism deck ran like 21 blues. True, but original the, Luminaris. That's true. I will say so, the original Prism deck didn't need to play all of the red heralds though that was the big thing was that deck was fine not, with just that, that's actually the hard balance point like it's yeah, a good that, that's that's good like point. the biggest the red heralds are the problem yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. they they even feel like the problem when you're playing with Bluminars. it's like yes. wait no i can't just play all blues and my whole sideboard can't be yellow auras like what i have to play real cards it's ridiculous it's possible that we find depending on matchup spread that the yellows are just good enough like mm-hmm. if they're giving you two cards, they're giving you two cards, and oh yeah, like, you're fine with that. There's a lot to explore. I think like there's yeah. so many different things that just nobody's tried yet with Prism. I'm really excited. But Dan, what is uh, what's your take here? Yeah, so I haven't played much Prism with any weapon, um, but I feel <laughs> like the new Puminaris simplifies the deck building um, puzzle a little bit, and I feel like it should make playing the deck feel smoother because um, you don't have this additional cost that you have to consider. Like, is it worth giving go again here? Where it's kind of like just built into the game plan if you're playing this weapon. So I feel like for like new players picking up Prism, it could be a nice like starter weapon to get the hang until there's a Runaways video to to guide them through through the Blumenera's setup. I think that it makes all your aggro matches better mm-hmm. by playing this card for the most part. Uh, it also means you're not attacking with Blue Heralds as often, uh, which mm-hmm. the couple points of damage is actually pretty relevant in a lot of uh, your race matchups. Oh, yeah. So having more Blood yellow armor. attacks, having more uh, mm-hmm. protections in your deck, these are all like very important things in your race matchups. So I think it pushes the matchups uh, that it struggled into. Uh, it makes it better. But then the question is, how much worse does it make your Iris matchups? 
And that's, you know, that's the spot we're going to have to figure out because you have to play Iris. Like you're not, you're not going to play this and push into a Bravo. It's like, it, there's no world where that works. So that's, that's like the next uh, exploration. There's no way you can't do it. We'll see. Okay. So it sounds like there's a lot more to do with prism to figure out if we can figure out the Iris uh, situation while also running the yellows. I think it's a big improvement for the overall matchup spread. Um, uh, but we'll really do need to see about what comes in the next set and uh, if it really puts Prism on Blast or not. Uh, the next thing I did want to talk about is we got confirmed, it's been like a week or so, that we are having a sealed calling. I don't remember the last time that we actually had a, a sealed calling. It might have been like two years I ago. Say, I think the weirder statistic is that we actually do remember the last time there was a sealed calling. <laughs> it was, Wait, it was, wasn't there one at Worlds? Yeah, a standalone calling. Though. A standalone, okay. a standalone. Not, yeah. a, not a lumped in with, with the yeah, major. It was, it was Tales of but, Aria. Yeah, I think it was Tales of Aria was the last time yeah. we did it. It was uh, since your there has been There's been a bunch of back and forth that mm -hmm. I've seen on people's opinions of the sealed calling. Mm -hmm. As most of us, or almost everyone on the team, will probably end up going to this calling. Uh, what are your guys' opinions of this being a sealed calling right after the set comes out? And with you know some draft as well, and then what is your you know general take on a seal calling overall? Who's first? I have thoughts, but I'll let somebody else go first because I went first last time. I'll jump in. I think the main complaint is around like regions that don't get a lot of callings, um, which I think is valid, but I think it's like a separate issue. Like they should just have more events. I think sealed callings are awesome. Um, you hear it a lot. Like it's the perfect kind of like stepping stone to get from the casual local play to competitive check out the tournament scene. Uh, the barrier of entry is like the lowest it can be. Uh, you only have to learn about one set instead of testing like every deck in the format and figuring out how to sideboard correctly. Um, so I think it's great for giving newer players or people who just haven't competed yet the opportunity to kind of do that at a lower entry point. Um, I think it's just a ton of fun in general. Uh, I think for like the higher level competitive scene, sealed can be a bit of a feels bad for that level of a tournament, but I think that's just something you have to accept if you're playing a sealed calling. I think that's fine. Uh, I think it's good motivation a day two, so you can get to the draft portion and try and uh, outskill your opponents then. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think having the option to, to play in limited callings and constructed callings is a good thing where we didn't really have that the past two years, so... I'm all in. <clears throat> James, I know this is in your backyard, literally. Uh, so yep, yep. how do you feel about your backyard calling being uh, sealed? So um, I'm currently thinking about judging that event because it's a higher EV, in my opinion, since I don't have to, you know, play pay for a flight or anything. And I can literally just drive there and back if I want. Uh, that's how low I am on a sealed <laughs> calling. I wish it was a draft only calling, but I understand that is a logistical nightmare for um, the judges and the staff and everything. And it's not a, like Dan said, it's a harder barrier of entry if you start in immediately with draft. But sealed is such a feels bad. Like if your pool isn't at least okay, you will not make day two. And that is with every sealed format. And it's just, kind of ridiculous for that kind of stuff um i might just play if i can't get in the judging thing last time i checked it was still open but 
I don't know, the, the fact that I'm even thinking about judging and not going to the only calling that's ever been in New England is ridiculous. Um, this area has had a severe lack of events, but we got to drive to uh, Pro Tour 1 and won the Battle Hardened at the beginning of this year. I don't know. I'm pretty disappointed, but, you know, whatever. Beggars can't be chooser. I'll just be there regardless. <clears throat> can always farm uh, Cold Fire Enchants instead. <laughs> That's yeah, true. They are all gone. Yep. Yes. Um, Do we know what the battle hardened format is for the event? It is currently. It's it said CC, yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay, um, I can judge Saturday <laughs> playing the battle hardened. Battle hardened, yep. <laughs> um, so I am excited to see Seal of Callings back. Uh, I know that the Seal Callings in Cincinnati and Dallas back in Tales of Aria were huge hits. They got a lot of people into the game. They were really fun to, at least in my opinion, watch. I didn't get to go to them, but they were really fun to watch. And especially at the start of the game, they were really good. Like everybody is, keeps saying, low barrier to entry is great for new players. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure, however, that I'm going to be making it out. And it's not because of logistics. It's not because I don't want to pay for a flight. It's because I don't really like Sealed. Um, I don't mind Sealed as a concept. Um, and I actually think for heavy hitters specifically, they might be able to fix... Uh, a little bit of the problem that we've been having with most seal formats in Flesh and Blood, which is there's really only one hero. Um, Bright Lights was, at least in my opinion, a huge letdown for Sealed. I actually think it was one of the weaker seal formats we've had, um, which was frustrating given how interesting it was that, honestly, I think all three heroes were playable in Sealed, which is crazy. That's just never happened. There was just the the Teclovesson problem made it so where there were a lot more unplayable decks that weren't Teclovesson. Um, like Jimmy said, the feels bad of not having a playable deck, um, hasn't, uh, existed in large part in a lot of the different formats we've had, but the fact that it can happen does feel bad, especially if you are making the trip. Um, and for such a high level event, like a calling paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for a flight in a hotel, and then you open your pool and it's not, it just can't win games is really frustrating. Um, but I think if they focus on sealed, uh, in heavy hitters and they try to make it to where sealed is a playable format in a competitive context, I think it's amazing. Um, I actually think that LSS probably should put a little more work into sealed, um, in addition to draft. Uh, obviously a lot of people have issues with draft and flesh and blood, but sealed really just, at least in its current state, cannot be a competitive format in my opinion. Um, but I think the three classes that we have in heavy hitters actually have a chance to change that. Um, all being classes that can potentially, um, beat fatigue is a big thing we've seen in the past. Uh, Teclovesson had, uh, a fatigue weapon with two other heroes that did not have a fatigue weapon. Uh, we saw assassin back in outsiders, um, <clears throat> be able to fatigue rangers and then play against ninjas that couldn't have a functioning resource base potentially in sealed. Um, because of the difficulty of getting zero-cost blues. And then we, we've seen the same thing in the past uh, a few other times with Lexi, you know, not being able to be fatigued and things like that. Um, but with heavy hitters, we have three classes that have historically all had fatigable weapons with hammers, clubs, and swords, and all the different stuff. But Warrior, Brute, and Guardian all can beat fatigue, at least in theory. Uh, it's still Flesh and Blood Limited. I'm sure plenty of games will go to the distance, but I think we'll have fewer decks that are not playable because blocking 12 doesn't work when your opponent gets to pitch a full card to swing a full card um 
So I think that heavy hitters has the potential to actually give us our first sealed format in a while that is fine. And a sealed format that's fine, where every deck is at least playable, is enough for me. Um, <clears throat> I think that I would surely be going if we had a little more time um, before we got the set. Like if we got the set and then I could have maybe you know a few weeks to a month uh, to decide if I was going to go to the event, I might end up going, but I just don't think I'll risk it. Uh, because of I think the, I'm the opposite here. Yeah, I I'm just like don't excited. want to. I'm excited else. because it's right at the beginning. Like, yeah, I want yeah, like I day zero. No I one knows anything. Yeah, it's really cool to be right at the beginning. Um, I'm just scared that it's going to be a dud format, but uh, yeah, but I, it's like I the have faith. So, if there was ever a time that you could overcome a bad pool, it would mm. be at the very beginning of the format. So, That's like true. your your actual play <laughs> skill, and then whatever prep you actually put in the mm. weeks leading up to it, because. We are getting this set spoiled kind of early mm -hmm. uh, from a lot of other sets due to the event happening in Auckland. So mm -hmm. because of that, we're going to have these cards and know what's in them way like these, you know, this That's set true. know what's in it way earlier. Yeah. Um, and then we can you can get some practice in. <laughs> but because it's the beginning, because people have played so few games of it, this is like when you could overcome a bad pool. That's true. That's true. I didn't think about that. Mm. Oh, maybe I'll go. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I will, I will agree with you yeah. that like the last couple of sets haven't been great, uh, mm -hmm. mainly due to the fact that the reason Tekla was the best choice was because you only got like seven red boost cards, if that, out of all of your packs. And like you yeah. just can't play an aggressive yeah. deck bright with lights. seven red boost cards. Yeah, Bright Light Sealed was just, I don't think... I yeah, think and then like the set before that, <laughs> all that mattered was your rares because all the power was in the rare <clears> slot <throat> for the most part. So if you got playable rares, then you were just way more powerful. And a lot of those playable rares were really good in Azuri. So mm -hmm. Azuri ended up being the one that you would play you know, most often. Mm -hmm. And so I think the actual issues with Sealed has been outside of um, maybe just like one hero is better than the other and, and yep. more of like pack configuration mm -hmm. has been the issue lately. Originally, I agree with you that Sealed was simply just this one hero is good, the rest are bad. Mm -hmm. um, but I think lately it's been pack configuration. Hopefully with this set, it can be different. But I, I love Sealed. I think Sealed's fun. I agree. It feels Indeed weird, too. but it's fun to just like roll up to an event with nothing. You're mm -hmm. just like, yeah, give me what I'm playing. Yep. Um, rolling the dice is fun. I think taking something that's either, you know, mid to manageable and then like trying to win with it. I think there's some like level of enjoyment I get out of that. Obviously, if you have like a completely unplayable pool, <clears throat> it's not great. Uh, but I have found that like taking something that's kind of mid, making it very good. Mm -hmm. um, that gives me a lot of enjoyment in the sealed process. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about it uh, more than I think I would if it was constructed. I would have hated if it was constructed because what the set just came out. Yeah, constructed week one. All the things okay. together. Yeah. It's basically like constructed week one isn't a real constructed week. Like everyone just defaults to whatever the heroes were before the set for the most part mm -hmm. um, and then plays the game. And I think this is a great way to have like the very first calling. So I'm pumped. Yeah, I can get behind yeah. that. And to your point, Cody, like even if your pool is amazing and you just play bad, you can cover it up by saying my pool is unplayable. Yeah. <laughs> Take right. all personal responsibility away for failure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> either the pool is bad or you're a genius and you made this pile of terrible cards work. I will say sealed gets a little bit less fun when the event gets the bigger the event is, I find the, the worse the sealed is. Like I think sealed battle hardens are like peak enjoyment for me for sealed yeah the calling will will be enjoyable obviously mm -hmm. because it'll be fresh but once you start getting into like 500 600 700 people like 
sealed events, you basically just have to open cracked. Um, yeah. If yeah. it's like later into the format. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do think having sealed work well is like super important though. Like I think having sealed callings is like kind of crucial. Like I, I live that experience of the low barrier of entry and, and like the magic days. Um, like my first and only big magic tournament I played was a sealed calling. Basically it was a GP. And like, if it was any other format, I'm not even considering going. So hopefully they can, they can make the sealed formats a little bit better. Yeah. And I think we have the groundwork. I think flesh and blood's a game that can mm -hmm. have good sealed. Um, yeah. And I think you're right about heavy hitters, Lucas, like it's set up to work, yep. at least be like playable for sealed, right? It's just, yeah. they all well, have this good is weapons such, in theory. Yeah, this is such an important set, like for a limited yeah. and a for, for constructed, like I think that they, with the classes that they have and the meta the way it is, I think it really can be like an absolute slam dunk. Yeah, um, I agree. Let's just yeah, make we're going to have to wait and see. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's legitimately not that far. Like a month away, we're going to have most of the cards in the set or are about to have mm -hmm. most of the cards in the set. So yeah, Prism um, will be the best deck and, you know. <laughs> we'll see. Prism Kano meta. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Kano meta, uh, something happened this last week mm -hmm. where Kano won a battle harden in Orlando. Uh, Julian was able to take it down. Yeah, not just any and yeah. not just any Kano. Yeah, Julian. Uh, but <laughs> everyone lost their mind collectively is uh, probably the best way to put it. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about was the rise of Kano. Is Kano a problem hero? Is, are people just not teching for it? Uh, what is the solution to the Kano problem? As people have been saying. Because uh, I hear everything from it's not a problem to it is a problem. Um, so, Lucas, you can start us off with this one. We'll go back around. Uh, what do you think of the Kano dilemma? Yeah, um, I don't know. He won an event. Crazy. Um, I don't think that's a whole lot to, to complain about. Um, I think that there is some merit in the you know argument that Kano is unfun to play against. Um I will say it feels less flesh and bloody than a lot of the other heroes, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, flesh and blood is a game for people who love playing great games and seeing somebody come in and play a hero that's different than everybody else because that's what they enjoy. I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, I do think that Kano probably shouldn't ever be uh, in his current iteration that strong. I, I do think it, it can be a little unfun. Um, but I don't think that there's anything we need to do about it. Um, despite what the Kano players may tell you, just putting more arcane barrier in your deck does make the matchup better. Um, you know, you'll hear a lot of the Kanos be like, oh, AB3 doesn't matter because you can never push or whatever. Shut up. If I AB3 your wildfire, it's like plus a billion damage. Like putting AB in your deck helps. Um, putting Oasis for Spite in your deck really helps. Um, and I don't know. I don't think that there's a whole lot wrong with it. Um, it can be a little unfun to play against, but so can a lot of other heroes. Everybody has heroes they don't like playing against. Um, people that play Kano love Kano. I wouldn't want to like ban Aether Wildfire or whatever, just, you know, and ruin all these people's days, especially because a lot of them are my friends and I don't want to see my friends sad. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Leave him be. Uh, if he wins like three tournaments in a row, Maybe you can come back and laugh in my face, but like he's not a problem. Like he has a bunch of bad matchups, and the the good matchups can help to make the matchups better, and the bad matchups can make them really good. 
just with a few cards. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's a big deal. Kano's fine. Yeah. Don't play Kano, though. It's really boring to play against. <laughs> Wait, unless I'm playing Prism, then play Kano. Dan, what do we think? What do we think of the Kano dilemma? Yeah. I think you need to stop letting Lucas go first because he's got a lot of good points tonight. Um, <laughs> I agree with like everything Lucas said. Um, I think, well, well, first, I guess, doesn't a wizard always win Battle Hardens? Isn't that just the thing? I don't think that's yeah, We got rid of one, of a surprise. and then the other one had to rise up. Yeah, yeah it was expected, I think. Um, yeah, I think from like a design and like the feel of Kano on the Kano side, it's really well implemented and fun. Um, I do have to agree, like, it's not enjoyable to play against Kano. I don't know how you fix that at this point. Um, but like most matchups, it's really just you do your most efficient damage and then you sit there and say, does this blue card I have stop me from dying? And then the Kano tells you who won the game. Um, that just is what it is. But I agree with Lucas. It's like there's always going to be unenjoyable matchups for your deck. Um, like some heroes have more interactive matchups against Kano than others. If you're just playing an aggro deck, then yeah, it's just you're kind of trading your numbers and find out who dies at the end. Um, yeah, I don't know. I agree. I don't think Kano's a problem. I think Kano is a problem if it is like consistently winning every event. Um, but there is like a sideboard cost to teching against Kano, but most heroes have like this one card that if you put in your deck, you're adding like 10 plus percent to your Kano matchup and everyone just doesn't add it like every time. <laughs> so maybe just add that card. I don't know. <coughs> UNG. <coughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> um, so I think Kano isn't necessarily bad for the game unless Kano is always winning and there's nothing you can do about it, even with sideboard, then Kano is very bad for the game. Blitz was like that for a very short period of time before they uh, hit Kano in Blitz. Uh, but Kano feels like a Pokemon deck to me. And for all the people that don't know, I come from Pokemon. All the cards behind me are Pokemon cards. And every Pokemon game is you sit there, and you watch your opponent fishbowl their deck for like a couple minutes, and then then they pass back to you if they don't have the game, and that's every single turn of Pokemon. And like Pokemon metas, everyone you you don't get a sideboard in Pokemon, so you have to mainboard your sideboard cards, and everyone goes to major events assuming that everyone else is going to sideboard for the Kano type deck and then since everyone assumes that then the Kano deck can eventually win uh i've been seeing that a lot in fab everyone else is like i'll just have everyone else do it for me and i'll just dodge the Kano you'll never win an event like that in fab you might top 8 but if you run into the Kano early then um that sucks for you uh, prior to this meta, when Kano wasn't very good, I managed to find a Kano at almost every battle hardening and calling I've ever been to, and he'll be like the only Kano in the room. <laughs> and then if it's literally like, did you get an E-Pot turn one or turn two? No? Okay, I guess I win. Because I've always played the decks that are just naturally good into Kano, like original Prism, Dromai, whatever. Um so if you don't want Kano to win, just play your AB3. Like if you're lucky to have a class with an AB2 piece, just play that. 
or like a spell void piece, whatever, like prism, you know, hmm? or just play your Oasis respite. But then the game just bubbles down to, did you draw your funny card? Did I draw my funny card? Yes. <laughs> no. So like, I don't know. Kano's like really boring to play, but I don't have a like play against, but I don't have a problem with it being in the game. But if you, if I, uh, queue into you on Talishar, I will just hit the no <laughs> button leave. and then leave. I, I refuse to play against Kano. I don't care. Uh, it is a waste of my time. There's so that, yeah. So I don't know. I think there are two good schools of thought here. I agree that Kano can be boring or unfun for certain players to play <clears> against, and there are some decks like Bravo who literally basically can't do anything in that matchup and just kind of lose the game. But there are very few of those decks. Most decks have pl uh, pretty polarizing matchups, or at least one that is just like, I auto win this. Um, and that's kind of the one for Kano. So I can understand maybe from the Bravo perspective, but I think a lot of these people were just sleeping. Like, did they not watch Realms games the week before? Did they not see how many Kanos were actually at the event? Did they not see the coverage afterwards? Like you can't skimp on the Kano stuff anymore. I think you need you just just dick just give three slots. That's it. Well, will the three slots work every single time? No. Does it dramatically increase your percentage? Yes. I would also say, and this is the biggest mistake I see people make when they play against Kano. And I was playing. I've played Kano a ton. The biggest mistake that they make is that they attack. Kano's low. They attack with their first attack, and their opponent blocks and then they block they swing one more attack and the kano takes it and then they hold up one card and pass if the kano blocks with a card from their hand <laughs> and you're at a reasonable health like 25 or above their ability to just combo off on a three card hand is almost mm -hmm. nil just kill them like they have to get super lucky to do it they can now do it they have to get super lucky so you have to push you have like if they give you the, the the card it means i'm not i'm trying not to go off this turn I'm just trying to to not die. And so I think if they had, you know, put AB in their deck, if they run away Sis Respite, I don't think this deck's a problem. It's only a problem if you disrespect it. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone was disrespecting it. So Agree. I think calling for bans or calling for nerfs is just kind of ridiculous at this point. At this point, I agree. But like theoretically, Kano can it is get possible. a million. Yeah. 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 You can just get too many cards like but this or like, I and then become overpowered. Like Prism 2. Like these decks have been unplayable for like a year. Like, yeah, let us let them have fun for, for an event or two and let's see what happens, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Not Kano. I think I think Kano's in a great spot right now. It's formidable enough to win an event mm -hmm. uh, if people are like slacking off against you. Mm -hmm. But it's not like oppressive where every player is going to pick up Kano because it yeah. just has the best win ratio. Just like, play like, Mech if you're worried about it. Yeah, it's just like it's in that spot that's just like just perfect enough where it can mm -hmm. still win, but it's not overpowered. If it got some better cards or, you know, some other things that fed into the combo now, I think that would then be a little sketch. Then we would be worried. Yeah, I agree. It's like the same way I feel about five. If he gets more consistent, he's also probably too good at this point. So don't disrespect your Kano, especially not locally, especially not at the medium events. You can disrespect Kano at like a tier four event, like the, the upper, upper levels. If Kano's yeah, like, there were no Kano's, there's like five or, 
Yeah. <laughs> if there's like five or six hundred people in the room, you can be like, okay, the eight Kanos who show up here, that's fine. But if you're showing up to like yeah, a battle hardened calling, right? Like or, whether or there's something, yeah. Yeah, whether there's 40 or 400, there's still always, like, 5 to 10 Kanos. Yeah. yeah. If you're showing up to, like, a 100-person battle harden, maybe put some Kano stuff in, Yeah, you know, yeah. in your sideboard. <clears throat> so, uh, But that was exciting. It was good. The, the games were very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stream was great. I loved watching uh, everything that happened over at Orlando. Uh, so the next thing here, and we do have a bunch of these. Uh, we have a new section. It's going to be podcast questions that are given to us from the members of our Discord. Uh, so if you would like to ask questions on a future podcast, or if you'd like to just get better at the game, uh, I would encourage you to join our Discord. The links will be below. Uh, but we have a bunch of questions here uh, that we are going to get through. We'll start off with this. Uh, what is your approach to evaluating your hand and possible blocking options when facing an attack? I realize uh, this from Kyle. one. Yes, you can. I, I realize that you can try and map out all the possibilities when you're blocking, but he would like to know uh, if we have a system to quickly determine what the best option is. And as you mentioned, this is from Kyle. Yeah, I didn't realize there was more question. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I always refer to like, I always start by referring to the value math, right? Um, that's kind of like baseline flesh and blood theory. Your cards were three on average because. You can block three with most cards. So that's your baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just do the math of like, if I hold, you usually have like a couple lines, right? Like either hold the hand, block two cards, strike two cards, right? So you do the math. If you attack with all four cards, how much damage did you present? If you block with two cards, ideally for six, do six plus what do you do with those two cards? Which number is bigger? Um, you shouldn't just like slam the bigger number every time. There's a lot of nuance and context you have to take into account based on the current game state and the matchup and your game plan for winning the matchup. Um, but that's I do that with pretty much any blocking decision. I just double check that math every time and say, does the math check what my brain is telling me to do? Yep. When in doubt, math it out. Do the math. There's yes. really check the math. Like a, there's like a three-step process, though. It's like the first thing mm-hmm. you look at your hand is, what do I want to do? You know, if I'm mm-hmm. playing Bravo and my hand is Crippling Crush and three blues, I want to say no blocks and then dominate a Crippling Crush. And then the next thing that you look at your hand and think is, what can I do? You know, I also can, you know, block with three cards and swing hammer for four or block with two cards and swing an arsenal. You know, you want to look at all the things you can do, right? You know, eliminate any bad lines, like, you know, IPing yourself or anything like that. And then the next thing is, what are they letting me do, right? If they are just throwing raw damage and, you know, like Dan said, the highest math is just dominate the crippling crush, you just dominate the crippling crush. Um, they play a snatch, maybe you reevaluate. But really, it's what do you want to do? What can you do? And then what are they telling you to do? And mm-hmm. like Dan said, through all of these steps, do the math. Okay. And just for people, most people uh, know the math, but if you're missing the math, we are valuing the cards at a minimum of three each. Um, obviously, if you have uh, well, minimum, like a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're looking to get three value out of each card minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say lately it's been a little bit higher than that. Uh, but if so, if you're looking at a two block that swings for four or blocks for two, obviously the higher math value here is swinging for four if you have the available action points. Um, so that would make like your decision a little bit easier. It's a very simplified version. We actually have a video on this that will be coming out um, mm-hmm. probably within the next month that uh, breaks stuff like this down a little bit better. Yeah, the, the most yeah. instructional thing that I've told to new players is 
a card, a great card. This is an example is Enlightened Strike. Um, one thing I'll see a lot of new players do is every time they draw an E Strike, they'll put a card on the bottom and choose Go again. Um, but if the card you put on the bottom is a three block, and you could have blocked six with those two cards, probably better to block six than attack for five. Um, it's not just you know each individual card. I think that's been the specific interaction that's helped most people in my experience. What uh, separates like a good player from a great player too is going to the fourth option of having a game plan and you look at your hand and you're like, hmm, do any of this matter for my game plan? Uh, and getting to the point of actually having a game plan is both in deck building, knowing like how to play into every deck, what cards matter, but then that's a whole like different discussion of what even matters. And then it's like knowing when to break the first three decisions of like, is it okay to ever like IP myself? Is it okay to take a bunch of damage to do what I want? Like the crippling crush thing, like evaluating what matters is probably the hardest thing in flesh and blood. And I find that most people will play their entire career without even considering that. So that's uh, also important. Yeah. I have a, a simple four step program just to close this off, courtesy of Joe Cologne and probably Cody too when I first started playing the games, it was like my first level <laughs> up. So what you want to do, you want to think, pretty much everything James was just saying. Step one is think. Step two is do the math. Step three is double check your math. And step four is to think again and make sure what you thought about the first time makes sense now that you know the math. If you do that for every like turn cycle decision you make, I guarantee you'll like double your win rate. Is that why it's if you're not doing that already. for you to make decisions? Correct. Dude, my mine Correct. was only three points long. That's why I've never gone to time. Well, we're old now. Hey, dude, so I've gone to time like down. once in the past year, and that's because I played Fighting. <laughs> okay, next question here, and I do apologize if I butcher this name, uh, but Juha would like to ask: In which ways uh, would you attempt to improve the Fab Draft experience next? LSS has tested generics, shared talents, hybrid cards, multiple heroes per class, and a single class set uh, to add more choice. Uh, and then what do you think is left to be tested? Um, so one one thing that... So the first question being, in which ways would you attempt to improve the experience? I would yes. take all of the things that were just mentioned that we liked and do those. Because some things were not as successful as others. Um, I think the hybrid talent system was a huge success in Tales of Aria. I think that was, a lot of people think Tales of Aria was, you know, the best draft set. And that's why they think that most of the time, right? Is that you had these generics that weren't generic in, you know, your earth cards, your ice cards, your lightning cards, uh, and then your, your elemental generics, right? I think that set was great in terms of being able to stay open and choose your hero later. Obviously, there were other issues um, but that was really nice. heroes. That's mm -hmm. the, that, that was the big problem. Yeah, that, the problem was one of the heroes was much weaker. Um, but I think that we have a lot of examples of draft formats that do certain things really well, um, and just have other glaring issues. Um, I think at least in my opinion, the biggest issue that we've had historically with fab draft, especially, especially, especially at the beginner to intermediate level has been with fatigue. Um, fatigue is an important part of flesh and blood. Um, but I think at some point, Fab Draft uh, can try to make formats that have this be less of an issue, uh, whether that's have all of the heroes have a lot of evasive damage, like, you know, for example, have a format where it's all 
dominates and arcane damage. Um, I think Uprising was the best example of this. Um, again, calling back to some sets doing things better than others. I think Uprising was the best set in terms of not having fatigue be uh, a you know way to keep beginners out of the format. Um, obviously, sometimes you did fatigue in Uprising, but all of the games were over usually before fatigue set in. Um, and I think really the, the key with Fab Draft is getting all of these different things that all these different sets have done well. You know, the hybrid talent system from Tales of Aria, uh, outsiders having really good math and disruption, um, you know, uprising, not having fatigue be, be a problem. You know, the bright lights having all of these unique ways that you would have to build your deck for the different matchups and all of this different stuff and being able to incorporate multiple of those per set. Uh, without having some of the problems we've seen where, you know, one deck is better than all the other decks or, you know, one deck is easier to draft or easier to fatigue people with. Um, because, you know, a lot of these sets have had glaring issues, let's be real. Um, and they're pretty solvable, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think this last set we just had, Bright Lights, I think is very good and very uh, a big movement into the next direction. Um, my biggest complaint has almost nothing to do with the drafting experience of Bright Lights and everything to do with the play experience of Bright Lights. Yeah. Well, I think this was one of the first sets in a long time that had a lot of skill on the draft side, a lot of skill mm -hmm. on the play side. It did have a bunch of situations that invalidated all of that skill just because of how boom grenades and overpower and things like that uh, functioned. You could just kind of get blown out out of nowhere uh, and it, it kind of yeah. felt bad. So you had some yeah. like, really high variance points however all the points around that all three heroes are playable uh and, and they all you have to build your deck in specific ways to counter each hero um and it was like the first time that the entire time you're drafting it felt like you were actually making constant you know actually making choices of what cards you're going to get you don't just pick like the first six uh you know picks are like okay i have choices here and then afterwards you're like i'll just take my class card you had to yeah, keep I, making choices. I pick nine matters. <laughs> like, yes. And so that was like a big improvement. I think this one, I think Bright Lights is not my favorite draft set. That'll still be WTR. Uh, so something they could try is four classes because that seems to be real good in WTR. And we have not had that yet. There's Monarch. been no draft set with four real class. Monarch did have that. I Monarch. love Monarch. No. Um, <laughs> Arcane Rising. Come on. Not real, not real. Uh, but I will say that that's maybe the next step is maybe we could combine these things with having four classes mm -hmm. in a set for draft instead of three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think Bright Lights was pretty awesome from like a competitive perspective. Like if I had to play a tournament with any stakes for draft, it, I want it to be Bright Lights 100% of the time. Just because yeah, I feel I, like I, I don't I just lose yeah. because of the draft process. I get to like actually play the games. Like there's a lot of variants like the boom grenades in the gameplay. But I, I just such a feels bad when like you get train wrecked in the draft, and that's just not a thing in bright lights if you know what you're doing. Um, on the more like casual side, what I really want to see in draft is more archetypes outside of just like class and talent, uh, and like more build around cards. If you open this cool rare or majestic that you can kind of build synergies around, things like um, the wager mechanic, right? Um, if you get a bunch of wager cards early, then you're gonna stack the biggest number of attack you see. Like that's a small example but things like that I, I just want to see more like directions you can take your deck outside of the obvious yeah that aren't just playing a different hero because that's one thing yeah. with outsiders and heavy hitters that they they'll probably be doing is 
and then there's different warrior archetypes, but it's just different heroes. That's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from uh, years of doing magic draft, one thing that I've noticed that Fab doesn't have, and I don't know if this will help, but they've never tried it, is add more cards to the pack or even just an entire another pack. When you draft magic, you don't have, like, half your pool you're drafting is just lands, so you don't play with half your pool, so you, your choices throughout the draft can matter less. And then when you get the cards that matter, they matter more. Um, I don't know if I'm articulating that like correctly, but like we're getting the same amount of cards as magic, but then we have to play almost a hundred percent of them. Like in Bright Lights, we only had what like two extra cards, four extra cards. Yeah, if you wanted and, to play forty cards, yeah. Yeah, if you wanted to play forty cards. So like with the exception of the couple heroes we've had throughout every draft where you want to go lean and go down to like 30 cards, like Fi, 29 with Fi, then like that felt more magic-y, but they like have never really leaned into this and I would like them to do that. And then like Dan's point, I would really like more build around cards. I would really like more archetypes. So far, the only draft that I felt like we really had more archetypes was WTR. But here Mm -hmm. in the United States, we really haven't drafted WTR outside of a a casual level. We had the farewell to uh, Welcome to Wraith. And then other than that, you just have to like just. Yeah, yeah, which was awesome. But like you have to go to like side events to do it they're they're like i don't think there's been any real major events since post-covid with uh wtr and that set actually had a bunch of archetypes for each hero um like door you could play like attack actions yellow Mm -hmm. bellow um and then past wtr almost every like subtype um build around have all been like majestics like luminaris um getting the um whatever the shadow weapon is for chain dread scythe yeah dread scythe yeah. yeah, I mean, well. chain i mean raiden yeah yeah just raiden that you just passed it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the like, there's a build around yeah. so. <laughs> i will say one, yeah but one, like yeah the problem that we've had with the build arounds is they're not build arounds like the the power like majestics that need setup are just like things you'd play anyway like terminator tank um, I think is a good example of just like a, a bomb majestic that looks like it's a play around, but just play yep. your tackle vest. Just in put deck. it in the deck. Yeah, yeah. You, your deck is just better now. Like you, you don't have any interesting things you have to do. It's just wow, cool Terminator tank. Like via the Vanguard. Well, like your your Bolton deck doesn't with... change. You just have a V now. <laughs> yeah, yes, but in the case of bright lights. The uh the way that I formulated Teclo was I invented the like block out Teclo where I just took all the block cards and I was like I get to block you don't get to block and it was like guaranteed to go two one or better and the amount of people this would blow out at any level event not knowing that this was a thing and most people's win cons were just the high variance uh I hope I get there overpower with a boom grenade uh that's crazy two block cards i stopped your 10 overpower or whatever but then i would also try to if i didn't draft a tank i would just also try to 
build my own tank with like a gigawatt and one of the many overpower cards and just like kill somebody. Um, I didn't really see anyone outside the team ever have this strategy, but like, I don't even know if that was even akin to something like Yellow Bellow, where like it is just a completely different way how to draft the deck. Like, you still want some of these cards, I'm just taking them more aggressively than other people would. Yeah, I'd I'd say that that was super dependent on how your pot was drafting, on how many block cards you could actually get, and how many people in there you know knew that they needed at least a couple of them. I mean, I took I took that strat and I played it at uh, Worlds. I mean, it was luckily I had a tank because that's kind of the difference is you take the block strat and then you like add a tank, um, and then you add some two uh, cost boost cards and then you have like a three O techlo deck and if you don't have those things, then you have a 2-1 Teclo deck, and, uh, you know, that was kind of how it worked. Uh, But I agree. I think it's been getting a lot better for draft, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to see if this continues suit with draft getting better. But Bright Lights has been the first draft experience in a long time that I actually enjoyed. Yeah, and they're very openly willing to experiment, which I give them props for. Like, I I feel that they're determined to get this thing right, and I trust that they will eventually. Cool. Uh, Next question here. Uh, it's from Suji Time, uh, and I just wanted to mention it because he did, you know, post it here, but we did kind of cover this already. But can you give me one argument why Kano absolutely should be banned out and one argument why it has zero business being looked at by LSS? Uh, and I think we just spent a bunch of time arguing why it doesn't need to be touched at all, but does anyone have a reason why it should be touched? Yeah, uh, but he won a single event. Get him out of here. Make all my friends sad. Ah, good. Can make yeah, funny Like. Oh, uh, wizard can't win events then. Oh. No, I'm saying any deck just shouldn't win an event ever. If they do, they should be banned. Yeah, agree, agree. <laughs> Living legends should be one point. Okay. Once you win, you're out. Okay. Next question here is going to be from Jude. Uh, Jude asks, with such a wide open meta before heavy hitters, uh, how does this meta affect your sideboard as it relates to deck building? I mean, this one's. I would say. We are not doing a ton of deck building right now because you know most of the tournaments are over. Uh, however, going into that, uh, being wide, I think you're just using your sideboard to sure up matches that give you yep. the highest percentage or you feel like you're most likely to see. Um, if you are a deck that loses to Dromai, you are going to put zero sideboard slots to Dromai because mm-hmm. you just don't care about improving that one. You'd rather make your other matchups unlosable or the ones that you can actually sway, you'd like to put your points into that i.e. Kano, uh, you should put three of your points into, you know, stopping that if you're going to an event. Yeah, I agree with Cody there. Yep, agree? Okay. Yep. Uh, next question here uh, from Vanity is, do you think Wizard is such a big problem because uh, it, because, excuse me, uh, do you think wizard is such a big problem because any wizard existing in the meta alone eats a lot of sideboard space? Uh, would a hundred dollar, would a hundred card deck uh, be a solution? And I don't agree. I think we covered this as well. It doesn't. Ha- it's not that many sideboard slots. It's yeah. like th- three to five sideboard mm-hmm. slots to get like max percentages out of this we're talking about like two two additional arcane barrier because you're already running one most of the time so you put in like two more and then you put in like an oasis and then if you really want to get fancy you put in two oasises that's like five slots you also can just not 
which is the other thing. It's like, yep. Kano winning a battle hardened doesn't mean everybody's playing 77 card decks now. Like, you can just not play Arcane Barrier, or you can play one Arcane mm-hmm. Barrier. Like, it's just another thing you have to sideboard for. Like, Dromai existing doesn't mean that you every deck has to play nine poppers. Like, you can just not play poppers, and you can have a worse Dromai matchup, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, if your deck like fire or some aggro deck, like it's fine. You're still probably like fifty plus percent. You just mm-hmm. have no fallback plan, and that's okay. Yep. Um, this is like the same works. argument for like <laughs> fatigue decks. Like the big issue there was that that tended to take like five minimum slots to combat fatigue strategies when that was the big thing back in the olden days. Also, sometimes you just couldn't. Yeah. Like you, you just couldn't increase your win percentage with some decks. Yeah, so I definitely don't want to see the deck size increase because I don't like building decks, and that's more cards I have to search for. <laughs> and I think True. it's fine as is. But if we just accept that Kano won and then don't put in the AB, then Kano wins the next event. So which no, we the, already talked Kano's about. Kano's not going to play Kano because Kano just won. So now everyone's playing AB. Uh, I mean, sure. But then everyone, like all of us, are just like, oh, everyone else will do it. And then everyone else has that opinion. So then you just have to guess right, I guess. Yeah, it's just, you got to weigh the cost for your deck. Is it worth it? Okay, next here from Kuzco. What class and potential mechanics is everyone looking forward to the most in Heavy Hitters? Dan. Yeah, this is easy for me. Uh, I'm looking forward to more <laughs> dice rolling cards for my KO cube. <laughs> and I'm hoping we get a big boy KO and CC who doesn't roll dice. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's cool, but I don't want dice rolling to be a part of CC any more than it already is. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Lucas, you can talk now. Prism. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, for real, it's Guardian. I actually, I love Brute and Guardian both, but Guardian. I'm a Guardian. It would be nice to have a playable Guardian in this meta. Yeah, agree, agree. I just love blocking with, like, some cards and hammering. I just want to hammer people. Unban Witcher's well. Unban ult them. (laughs) Um, James, are you excited about anything coming in the new set? I am... No, I am not excited about things. In fact, I am maybe worried about this set, unless it's a Bright Lights power level, then I'm not worried about anything. But I get the feeling that the uh, Telerian Community College box thing was a bunch of spoiler cards for the next few sets, and the Bravant deck uh, buffed the tower mechanic back from like Crucible of War and WTR, and uh, that is not a world I want to live in where Bravos and whatever the new uh, Guardians just get to do, like, 16 Dominate Crippling Crush. I'm going to wager that I do 10 damage <laughs> or whatever, and then I'm going to snowball these into the end of the game. Um, if they have the pitch stack for that, yeah, that that's sounds fine. Awesome. That sounds awesome. Uh, if, I'm definitely playing this if they. Dude, if they do real. it for a cycle, that is not a world I want to live in. If there's dice rolling cards for KO, I don't want to live in this world. I already hate um, Scabskin's Leather. It is the worst card they, they have designed for competitive play. Uh, if they make all of these cards good, then Prism's not going to be good, and I'm a illusionist main. That's what you um, <coughs> But uh, Kasai's cute, so I guess I'm excited <laughs> for her. Yeah, I like Kasai. 
Uh, that's a I lot like of text on one card, and that makes me happy. And oh, I did play you text. That's pretty cool. I like text. If the if the text box has repeatable text on it, ooh, that, that gets me. And you get the banish cards. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, yeah, I'm also pretty excited just to see if there's anything I can steal and put in the Levia deck. Because yep. I feel like it um, only needs like one more card, maybe. Like, yeah, it's so, anything it's is so close. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we have the expansion slot now. We can just be excited about anything. I can just say I'm excited to get new Kano cards because it doesn't matter because this is an expansion slot. It could be anything. It's like the best thing that Fab's done in like a year. I think the community would just explode though if we got a Kano card. Dude, who That's cares? The community's going to explode if we get like a Brevent support. A Prism like, card? Yeah, yeah, the community exploded and we just got Puminaris. Like, who cares? Uh, ADC God asks who wins in the runaways internal tournament and why is it naive i okay. hate to tell this to you it is not naive it is and not naive. i think that is a good we have though. data that it is ethan van sant it is ethan van sant before naive was on the team yes yes, yes. Te- yeah this was before naive uh we might run it back. internal tournaments we are playing decks that we are testing and someone is playing a deck that they have a thousand games on so <laughs> he kind of pushes everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have no chance in that kind of thing. Like if it's not a tier four event, in my mind, the event is just preparation for a tier four event. It's yeah. one of my like improvement things for next year. I got to take callings more seriously, but I legitimately just treat them as practice for whatever major is coming up. Yeah. Which is kind of just wasted opportunity, I think. Agree. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm like the weakest like locals player. Like I go to locals and I I win my locals quite often, but like I feel like I am so easy to beat at locals. It's like not even funny. Like it doesn't matter how long you've been playing the game, you could totally beat me at locals. But as soon as that becomes like a you know a PTQ or an RT uh, RTN, like it's like a whole different game. Like yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> those as soon as it gets into a level where there is any prizing that's real, uh, I feel like I am way harder to beat. Yeah, no, I like at armories, I intentionally make the suboptimal play just to figure out how it plays out, right? Like if I'm between two lines and this is what I normally do and this play sounds terrible, but like maybe it's playable, I'm taking that terrible line just to find out. This is actually a pretty interesting talk. Locals keep beating him. (laughs) Hey, I I Uh, went with Levaya my first time playing it last night. I got my my cold foil Santa Claus. Because you didn't know what you were doing. I remember you and I had this conversation earlier in the year where it felt like we were playing mm-hmm. some games yeah. on autopilot and just kind of zoning out. Um, and this was happening at like battle hardens levels uh, and below and, uh, you know, some games in the calling. And I know I spent a lot of this last year trying to refocus starting mm-hmm. at like the locals level of just playing the game engaged the entire time. Yeah. Um, no. And I think that's, that's one of the <laughs> struggles is as soon as you play in some top eights or you play or, or for a lot of money uh, going back and then trying to play smaller events. Sometimes you just like disengage halfway through a game where you're like, yep. ah, it's probably already over. Yeah. Type of feeling. Yeah. No, that was rough for me this year. Like coming down from the world's high last year, I like started the year slow because I was like, this doesn't matter. I'm just waiting for the next worlds. And then I found out I couldn't play the next worlds. So I was in a weird place this year. I'm looking forward to next year. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, def- I definitely had that issue at the beginning of the year. And then I just kept losing all these events. Like I had a yep. really good start. And then I kind of like went down and then I was like, 
I just got to lock in and care about these small events. And then we started winning the small events. And now I'm back to where, like, I go to my locals. I just, like, get my ass beat. So now I need to, like, relearn, like, how to be good against, like, everyone. Just, like, try. Not not try. I, I, just, like, stay I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, really to is. be able to stay engaged in all of yeah. all your games because yeah. those things bleed into your tier four events and oh, like yeah. people don't really think about that like thinking that you've won the game like five or six turns into your locals and then just kind of mm -hmm. like disengaging from the game and then maybe it gets really close uh or maybe you even lose um it's like th those type of habits will bleed into a big event where you'll just mm -hmm. be like oh, at yeah. a big event oh i have this one and then you have to consciously start using energy to try yeah, and like round six or seven, especially like late into a tournament, mm -hmm. yes. like you just want to autopilot, but you really can't. Like you, it's have such to an easy level up really. too. Yeah, it's it's just being aware that you need to be engaged, right? It's okay to disengage, but if you're aware that you disengage, you can bring it back. Mm -hmm. And if you're just thinking I, about that, like you're gonna do so much better. I feel the complete opposite. You are in the presence of the local champion of New England. <laughs> <laughs> I farm, Fino and I Brody's farm Spurlock all the events. The Northeast, as they call it. Yeah, yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, armories, skirmishes, pre-releases, ProQuest, RTNs. If I'm not in, if there's anything for prize splitting and I'm not in the top prize splitting for it, I don't know what I did. Same thing with Fino. Um, I do take pretty much everything seriously, but then it's just the amount of take backs and coaching that I give people is like the trade off for how I play. And I think local level, like below battle hardened is just really knowing your local meta and this game being pretty close to like a fighting game for like video games. You have a lot of like people with their preferences and, you can actually one trick in this game. Like you have your illusionist mains, your fatigue mains, whatever. And at a local level, you can really take advantage of that. And if I had more like battle hardened and calling level events locally, I could probably take advantage of this. But I feel like New England's pocket of players is so different than the rest of the United States and the world that I don't really get to take advantage of that. And because I'm no longer going to battle hardens and stuff, it's hard for me to track the metagame evolving in real time without just like staring at the stats. But if you're not in the trenches, like actually talking to people, watching games, playing people, there's a lot you lose. Um, so that's where like I fall short. And then even if I manage to metagame correctly, I always manage to hit the Kano. So it doesn't matter, even if he's not meta. So now that he is meta and I have the cards in my deck for him, I'll never find him. Well, you did Such mention something that leads uh, into our next question here um, from Hussey, and it's uh, how do you all behave differently at each tier of event, like uh, an Ooh. armory versus a PTQ versus a calling? Um, he mentions here that he continues to think about the recent pummel hit trigger that wasn't announced at the competitive UK event uh, and how he would choose to act in these situations with, you know, thousands of dollars on the line. Um, I, I want to put this in two categories, I guess. It doesn't matter what level the event is. If it is a automatic hit trigger, I just do the hit trigger. That is how I personally play the game. So if the card is not optional, and I don't believe Pummel and Command and & Conquer and these cards are optional, 
they say on it, just do the thing. I just do the thing. I never really wait for my opponent to to verbalize it. If I'm giving up some EV that way, I'm giving up the EV that way, but that's how I practice and that's how I expect the game to go uh, personally. However, if it comes to optionals or takebacks, I used to be a lot more lenient uh, at major events when, hey, can I have my tunic trigger? Hey, can I take this back? Uh, those type of questions. I have I had to uh, stop doing that as often because I was just giving people things that I would never take myself, which felt unfair to me. Also, with the new take back rules, it shouldn't really be on you as often, and you should they should be calling a judge to ask for a rewind, um, without you know you really having to make that decision. But no, I don't I don't like if you swing your chrome eye and you don't mention that you have an action point and then you attempt to play another card. You know, at some point, I'm not going to call you out on that because you just got the action point. Chrome, I just said you get the thing. Um, that's how I personally feel. But this is this is like a, a person to person thing. There's mm-hmm. not like a yeah uh, of how you how you handle this. Yeah, so I'm in the same boat with you, Cody. Um, I actually still have the problem where I'm way too lenient with takebacks. Um, something I need to work on. Um, I've spoken to, I actually think I have a pretty unique experience on this. I've spoken to a lot, a lot of pro players on this topic, um, like discussing, you know, what would you do and what do you think about it? And a lot of people have had very different answers on what would you do? You know, how would you conduct yourself? But generally there is a consensus that what, at least from what I've heard from most people, I'm not going to say anyone because they might disagree, but generally, uh, what is in the rules is what is in the rules for a reason. Uh, and at least my personal uh, rule is if, if something is wrong, you call a judge and then whatever the judge decides goes, you can appeal to the, the next judge and the next judge, but whatever the ruling is, uh, is the correct ruling. Um, so something like the, the pummel hit trigger classically, if the judge rules that you don't have to discard a card, then I think it's perfectly reasonable to wait for your opponent to tell you to, to hit the discard trigger. Um, I think, uh, especially at these high-level events with, you know, thousands of dollars on the line, you should play to the rules. And while I think in that situation, I definitely would have just discarded to Bumble and not even waited for my opponent to discard, I don't fault anyone for, um, you know, making that call and, and waiting because that is, you know, what the rules say to do. Now, if you're angle shooting or you're rule sharking or you're bending the rules, yeah, don't don't be a scumbag. Um, but if it's in the rules and it's especially if it's relatively clear in the rules, just follow that. Um, that being said, at armories, don't. I think uh, part of the question, you know, how do you conduct yourself at different tiered events? I think stuff like that at armories uh, is just not the not the type of thing you should be doing. Uh, practice how you yeah. play, but not like that. Yeah, I'd like to add a little bit, um, maybe color here is there. I agree. Like if you're going to play that way, like the rules are the rules that that way I'm very, that's why I'm very specific about every hit trigger announcing mm-hmm. everything, playing as clean as possible is like a huge focus for me. I think personally, the reason why those automatic effects, I don't try and like, you know, gotcha on people with is more of a thing of like, I just want to beat people. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to beat them because they like missed a trigger because I expected that trigger already happened. Not, I've already planned everything for it. Like, I, I just want to beat you. Like, I, I don't want to beat you on the rules. Like, if you make a mistake, that's different. If I just waited for you to say a trigger and you didn't verbally announce it, then 
that feels a little bit scummier to my me personally on how I want to win the game. Yeah. Yeah, I can go through my uh Yeah. How I think about these things. Uh I tend to align with like the the different tiers for the the rules policies. So casual, competitive, professional. Um at the casual level, like I'm more like this is for testing or having fun. If you want to rewind like three turns ago, we can go back three turns and we'll figure it out. That's fine. Um, whatever benefits both players the most for casual, that's what I'm down to do. Mm-hmm. Um, professional is kind of the tougher one. Or not professional, rather. Professional is easy. Uh, professional tier, if something goes wrong or a player wants a take back, whether it's me or my opponent, we're calling the judge. It's not either of our decisions to make. It's the rules are what the rules are. The judge is supposed to make that decision for it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> just call a judge. It's that simple. Uh, at competitive tier, for me, it's more like the type of event matters a little bit. And if I know my opponent is newer to um, like competitive tournaments, uh, I believe the intent at that level is that it's meant for players to learn how to compete and participate in competitive level events, right? It's like getting ready for professional. Um, so I usually allow at least like one minor take back per game um, where it's more about like educating the opponent about like, no, like it works this way. Um it's probably good to call judges in those spots too, just so like the education is there um, on both sides of like how that should be ruled. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, I'm like, I'm probably too flexible at competitive level events as well. Like I've been caught helping my opponents beat me at callings when they tell me like they're new to the game. Like, oh, that's great. This is how you win this matchup. Like, no, don't make that block. That's probably not what you want to do, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It's It's like... It's such a personal thing at that level, I think. But professional, I think you should just play by the rules. If something is out of the ordinary, call a judge. That's not your decision to make. It's probably the same at competitive, at competitive as well, though. Um, to kind of like go deeper into what I said on the last question with mine, um, it does completely matter on what level I'm playing at. Um, I learned the game through playing Original Prism. And, like, the best example is I have, like, an arc light out. And at a armory level, I will go in detail and explain to my opponent what arc light does if they're new. And if they, like, just still try to attack me or whatever and not understand, I'll be like, no, 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 go back and explain. Now, we level up and we go to, like, a pro quest or an RTN, I will still explain this to them. And if they get it wrong, that sucks. I tried explaining to them. And I may even tell them, being like, you should probably just attack this with your weapon or whatever. whatever. But if they still do it wrong, well, I tried to explain it to them. And then at a professional level, I will play Arclight. Like at a calling or at the Pro Tour. And if they d- don't know what it does, I, I don't know what to tell you. Where like You can ask a judge on what this card does. Um, but like when it comes to things like the pummel trigger or whatever, I'm on the, the Cody boat of, uh, automatic things happen. I expect them to happen. I will still announce that my Chromai gains me an action point or whatever. I try to play as cleanly as possible on my board. Um, but if my opponent like forgets to declare a, um, like a trigger on something like that, whatever, it's automatic, it's happening. Um, now if it's something like a snatch or like a, a Kyloria where it's like on hit draw and then they don't draw. That's where I'm just like, I don't like I personally struggle 
with at like a professional event of do I tell them to draw their card or do I just wait for them? Uh, usually I tell them to draw the card and that's usually to my detriment, um, reminding them of their beneficial triggers. I think, um, I think at a professional level, uh, I, I'm fine with not telling them to draw off their snatch. Anything lower than professional, I would tell them to draw off their snatch. If yeah, I always look at like, it like if if the onus is on me to do something because your thing hit, I'll do the thing because that's fine. But if like the onus is on you to do the thing because your thing hit, like that's on you, right? Yeah, I I agree. Like at a ProQuest RTN, I'll just I'll hundred percent just tell them. Yeah, I'll just yeah, yeah. calling. I'll it's, tell you how to call it. I don't even yeah, care. at a like, calling. But like at a Pro Tour, I. I still like I'm also a tournament organizer a TO and it's like so hard for me to turn off the switch for uh teaching new players and I'll sit down across from like Lucas and he'll forget his draw and I will just be like Lucas you forgot your draw you smell and he'll be like oh thanks man <laughs> yeah well I, I do think the new rules policy like helps a lot says that yeah. they'll get that back anyway um which you should mm-hmm. still call the judge at professional unless they've sure. unless they've already if it's like way later up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would. I wouldn't stop them if they like wrote down the health and like looked around and then was like, okay, I pass. Oh, I got to draw. And like they just like draw and do the thing. I'd be like, okay, whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. all within the same like scope. That's fine. Obviously, if they draw their hand of four cards and then say, "Oops, I didn't draw for my snatch," we got to call a judge because like, yeah, there's probably mm-hmm. nothing we could do at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the intent of the new rules policy is that like you're not supposed to get skill checked on triggers, um, yeah. but at a certain point. Uh, like new information is gained and it is too late to go back. Um, but currently, I believe those would usually get rolled back if you don't. New information isn't obtained, right? Yep. Okay, good topic there. The last question by Thargor for tonight is: When testing as a team, do you find alignment on on a matchup um, approach be important? So, when testing as a team, do you find alignment on matchup? approaches to be important for example if someone is approaching a matchup as a fatigue game and someone else is playing a different build or a more aggressive approach with a better win rate what is the process to resolve that and then how do you then uh handle group think i think this is a very technical question uh Mm -hmm. i think if anyone had the best possible answer to this they would have the best practice possible which is always the goal of you know every top team is to try and find a way to maximize practice but i don't think this is as big of an issue uh, as people think it is, because most top players already agree on how to play the matchup or the direction to play the matchup. It's typically what cards fix this matchup more than other cards. It is very rare for a bunch of top level players to sit down, look at a matchup, and all like disagree wildly on how the matchup should be should be looked at. Um, and most of the time, this is just done through data. Like if we if we disagree, which has happened sometimes. It's just data. We just look at what is winning more, what is more consistent, um, and we go from there. Yeah, um, I think even the individual cards can kind of extend this question. Um, yep. I think ultimately, um, every even if you're a team, every person is doing what's best for them and what's going to help their winner percentage the most. So, um, you know, we can use a wild example of, you know, playing two different matchups a different way, like, you know, Oldham and Alexi, for example, you um, play fatigue them or you play super aggressive. Um, ultimately, you should, at least in my opinion, just do what is the higher win percentage for you. 
Um, you know, if you find in testing, you know, if your if your whole team says that you're supposed to fatigue them and it's a higher win percentage, but you, um, you know, you personally have a higher win percentage playing aggressive, then you should play aggressive. Um, but generally speaking, I think that happens, like Cody said, pretty rarely. Um, and even with smaller card choices, usually it's pretty clear uh, when a team has put in the work and done enough testing, it's pretty clear which the better choices are. Uh, but pretty much anytime you walk up to like a team, like if a teammates are playing different lists, um, if they have like micro changes in their lists, it's because they said one of them was like two days before the event, they wanted to radically change everything. And they, they want to change like two cards. And that's why their, their deck is different because they didn't, they didn't do enough testing. Like you look at our Icelander deck that we played at nationals. We all, all four runaways that were playing Icelander, myself, Dan, Cody, and Jesse, we all had the same exact list. Because we put a lot of work into it, we did a lot of testing, and we all found through testing what the best AD was. Um, even though some of us, <clears throat> like myself, may have changed uh, like five cards the night before without doing any testing, because Cody is a genius. Um, but generally speaking, it's pretty clear what the data tells you to do and, and how you're supposed to build your deck uh, once you put enough of the work in. It's a really good point, though. Like, I think we do a good job of... like having these findings and bringing our findings to the table. But at the end of the day, like you have to make the best decision for you as a player. Um, Cause there are cases like I think about like the five versus Bravo matchup back in the day, like should you be playing defensive and something at Artivore or is Artivore like the only way to win that matchup? And that was something we disagreed on for a while. And like, ultimately you should play to whatever fits your play style and is working for you. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the time when this happens, it's just like, not to give too much sauce away, but it's just like, what's the disagreement? It, oh, it should be played this way or it should be played this way. Okay, assign people to do those things and then like yep. come back with findings on what feels better and then look at the data. Look, you know, look at what makes more sense. And sometimes option A might be the best way to play the matchup, but option B is the only sideboard slots you have available and it's good enough. And like, that's like a whole different level of, you know, deck building to think about, but it's not very often that you just have like two opposing sides that are just like, yeah. like, like this late into the process, early in the process, yeah. whole bunch of this, a whole bunch of this. And that's great. Late in the process, almost everyone's just going in the same direction or they've already accepted that it's a them thing and they're going to do, they're just going to do their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you put in the time, like you're going to have the conclusions. It's, yeah. it is rare that two strategies are like that close that you can't figure it out if you play enough games. Yeah, something's gone horribly wrong if two people just completely disagree, like, late. It's It just doesn't happen. James, any Agree. thoughts? Agree? Um, pretty much everything was there that I was thinking about. Just, uh, I would say, everything we've done as a team, there is things of contention at the end, but then if you know that something is wrong but you don't know how to figure it out, it's probably just better to go with the flow than wildly add five cards to your Icelander deck and change your deck to your detriment. <laughs> I top four the event. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, no, 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 that, that, was the right, that was the right call, 100%. You can't get less detrimental than that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So in the future, if you want to ask a question for the podcast, feel free to join the Discord. You'll see the link below. Uh, also, if you just want to get better at the game, 
that is kind of what we're trying to do there is give everyone a place where they can collectively get better at the game uh, for people who are uh, like-minded and want to work with. Uh, that does wrap up our podcast. I do appreciate everyone staying tuned and listening, uh, but we have been running for a little over an hour now and I am hungry, so we got to go. So goodbye. See you guys. Bye, so guys. Long. Yeah, we're getting rid of the envelope Seven here, but um... envelope we could do here darkness. is go ahead and play the envelope. Uh, all three pitches of envelope and darkness.